Well, if you would, take your Bibles and turn in them to Joshua 2. If you're visiting with us this morning, we preach through books of the Bible here, and right now I'm preaching through the book of Joshua. We've just started, so we are in the second chapter, and let's just begin by reading this passage of Scripture in its entirety this morning. Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where, they, where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that I have dealt that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. 
Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Amen. That's the reading of God's word, and let me ask his blessing upon it now. Father, we pray that by your word you would renew our minds so that our lives might be transformed. Help us to know you more through your word this morning. Help us to understand the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ more. And please instruct us in what it means to know and follow you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield was an English professor in the Women's Studies program at Syracuse University in the 1990s. Her particular area of academic interests were critical theory, especially queer theory. She was both a lesbian herself and an activist for LGBTQ causes. In 1997, while she was researching for a project on the religious rights hatred of the queer community, Rosaria wrote an article criticizing a well-known evangelical ministry at the time called Promise Keepers. Shortly afterwards, a local Reformed pastor named Ken Smith wrote a very thoughtful response to the article she'd written, which caught her attention. And as it turned out, the Lord used that interaction to set in motion a series of events which led to Rosaria's conversion to Christianity two years later in 1999. She's now become a pastor's wife. She lives with her husband, Kent, in Durham, North Carolina, where they've raised a family together. In 2013, Rosaria Butterfield wrote a book titled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It tells the soul-stirring and God-glorifying story of her journey into the Christian faith. This is the book. We have a few copies of it on the bookshelf. It's very raw, and I don't agree with all of Rosaria's theological positions, but it's an excellent book. I would encourage you to pick it up if you want to be encouraged the power of God's saving grace. That phrase from the title of Rosaria's book, An Unlikely Convert. Well, that could be appropriately applied to many believers down through redemptive history. Some of their stories are recorded for us in the scriptures. There's Saul of Tarsus, the arch persecutor of Christians. There is Joanna, the wife of of Cusa, Herod's household manager. 
There is the Gerasene demoniac who lived naked in a graveyard by the Sea of Galilee, terrorizing everyone who passed by. And one could go on like that, naming example after example. But some might argue that one of the most unlikely converts of all is found in the text we've come to this morning. The first chapter of the book of Joshua told the story of how God raised up Joshua to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land to take possession of it after the death of Moses. That's Joshua 1. Now, in if what you think if you think about it, in what is a surprising turn of events, the entire second chapter of the book of Joshua is devoted to telling the story of how a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab became a believer and was saved from perishing in God's judgment with the rest of her people. The story of Rahab's unlikely conversion is so striking that it's recalled on three different occasions in the New Testament. This morning, we're going to read about it, and we'll consider what it means for our lives today. So first, let's dive into the story. Let's take a closer look at this story as it's told in Joshua chapter 2. So first, you remember last Sunday, in Joshua 1, 1 through 9, the Lord had commissioned Joshua to lead Israel over the Jordan River to take possession of the promised land. And the Lord promised to give the entire land of Canaan to uh, Israel according to his promise to Abraham. And then after receiving this commission, well, Joshua takes charge. And he begins making preparations to carry that commission out. So first in Joshua 1, 10 through 11, if you look there, you see that he ordered the people to make preparations to leave in three days. And then in chapter 1, 12 through 18, he charged the two and a half tribes who had been given land on the east side of the Jordan to fulfill their commitment to join their brothers in conquering the land of Canaan west of the Jordan. Now, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. Now, on the one hand, that's not too surprising. It was probably pretty standard military practice to send out spies to do reconnaissance before going into battle. But on the other hand, it might seem a bit odd for Joshua to do this because the Lord had already promised to be with them and to give them victory over the Canaanites. So did this act of sending out spies reflect a lack of trust on Joshua's part in the Lord's promise? Well, not at all. The Bible never presents the sovereignty of God as somehow eliminating human responsibility. Uh, Just because God promised to give Joshua victory over the Canaanites didn't mean that Joshua didn't need to do his due diligence to prepare for battle. As one commentator put it, there's no contradiction in the Bible between trusting God and making proper plans. That turns out to be a good lesson for us, actually. 
You know, there's a sense in which that saying, let go and let God, is very misguided if it's interpreted to mean that we just wait for God to do all the work. That old maxim which Oliver Cromwell is said to have used with his soldiers, put your trust in God, my boys, and keep your powder dry. That's probably truer to Scripture. So the two spies left the camp of Israel from a place called Shittim, which means Acacia Groves. They crossed the Jordan River into Canaan. They entered the city of Jericho, just a couple of miles from the river, because that was going to be Israel's first target in the conquest. Now, upon entering the city, we're told in the rest of verse 1, they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, one shouldn't read too much into that. It was probably akin to travelers passing through one of those old western towns and stopping into the saloon. Yes, there were prostitutes there. But it was also a place where you could eat a meal and find a room for the night and catch up on local news. And it would also be a place where strangers would more easily go unnoticed because you'd expect to find a bunch of strangers in a place like that. And this is probably the kind of establishment that Rahab was running. And it explains why the two Israelite spies chose to lodge at her house. Now, while the text is actually pretty careful to avoid any hint of sexual relations here between the spies and Rahab, the prostitute, yet it does say that she is a prostitute, despite the many attempts uh, by scholars to suggest otherwise, this is the normal meaning of this Hebrew word here. And what's more, when you look at the New Testament's references to it, uh, they use the word that clearly can only mean prostitute. So what this means is that however she ended up in the profession, Rahab was an immoral woman. A lifestyle of prostitution can't help but sort of leave a woman with some level of moral desensitization. So not only was she a Canaanite, She'd no doubt grown up worshiping pagan gods, Baal and Asherah. But she had also was a hardened sinner in some ways. She'd lived a lifestyle of immorality probably for some time. And therefore, the description of Rahab as a Canaanite prostitute made her, you see, a very unlikely convert. And set the reader up to be quite surprised by what happens next in the story. Either these spies weren't very good at spying, or the security in Jericho turned out to be quite tighter than expected, because verses 2 and 3 tell us that it really wasn't long before their presence was discovered, and their location in Rahab's house was reported to the king of Jericho, who immediately sent officials to her door to arrest them. Right? So this is an exciting scene in a thriller movie. By the way, one could easily be confused by this, couldn't you? I mean, hadn't the Lord promised to give Israel success in defeating the Canaanites? Why then did he allow these two Israelite spies to be immediately discovered by the authorities 
upon entering the city. I mean, it seemed to contradict his promise. But of course, it didn't contradict God's promise at all. Quite the contrary, in fact. Instead, this event ended up leading to Rahab's deliverance. And Rahab's deliverance turned out to be critical to the entire storyline of the Bible. Because Matthew's genealogy of Jesus tells us that she ended up being in the line of the Messiah. It just goes to show you that we need to be careful trying to interpret God's providence, right? Because our perspective on what he's doing is severely, and I mean severely, limited. And something which might seem to us to contradict his good purposes might actually turn out to be the very way in which he has chosen in his infinite wisdom to bring those purposes to pass. As William Cooper put it in his famous hymn, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So unexpectedly, when the officials of Jericho show up at Rahab's door to arrest these two Israelites who had entered her house, we're told in verse 4, that the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So as the passage unfolds, you see that she knew very well who these men were. She knew that they were Israelites, that they had been sent to spy out Jericho for the purposes of destroying it in battle. She knew all that, and yet she helped them. She had to have known that to help these two men, rather than turn them into the city authorities, was an act of treason against her own people. It it would have led to her swift execution if it had been discovered. And yet, despite all that, Rahab, this Canaanite prostitute, decided to risk her life to protect these two foreign spies from being caught. In verses 4 through 8, we see that she hid them among the stalks of flax that she had drying up on her roof. And then she lied to the officers who had come to arrest them, saying they'd already left the city. So the officers ordered the gates to be shut in case the spies still were in the city. And then they raced to the fords of the Jordan We find out later that the Jordan was at flood stage, so there wasn't very many places you could cross easily, so they went to the place where you could easily cross to try to cut off the spies' retreat. I want to pause for a moment. I want to just touch on for a second this matter of Rahab's lie that she told to protect the spies in verses 4 through 5. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about whether Rahab's lie was sinful or not. And as you can imagine, uh, the problem, the ethical problem, has been exasperated by the fact that the New Testament twice seems to commend Rahab 
for protecting the two spies. And all of this is part of a much larger ethical discussion involving this and other passages about whether or not lying uh, in certain circumstances might not be sinful. If you think about it, you know, you've, maybe you've read a book like Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place, where she did something similar for the Jews in Poland, or sorry, in Holland. Uh, you recognize this is a significant and a very complex issue. And I just want to say it requires way more time than I can really give it here. Um, What I would rather do is there is some extended discussions that I found that are in a summary form. If you would like to look into this ethical issue more in depth, please contact me and I'll send you some good material that you could be accessible. It's not too long And you can sort of read through some of the issues and options and figure out where you stand. But there's just no way that I can devote much time to it today. So, getting back to the story. What would possess a Canaanite prostitute to betray her own people and risk her life to protect two men who had come to spy out her city on behalf of an invading army who are bent on destroying it. What explains that? Well, the answer comes in the next part of the story. And there we see that Rahab, probably after nightfall, but before they had gone to sleep, went up on the top of her house to talk to these two spies. And her speech is recorded there in verse 9 through 13, which It's interesting, one scholar has pointed out, and I I I haven't checked this out for sure, but he said that this is actually the longest speech by a woman in any of the biblical narratives. And in it, she told the spies that all the inhabitants of the land had heard about what Yahweh, Israel's God, had done first to the Egyptians about 40 years earlier at the Exodus, and then they had heard more recently what Yahweh had done to those two Amorite kings, Sihon and Og, just on the other side of the Jordan River from them. And as a result, Rahab said, I know that the Lord has given you the land. She understood the Abrahamic promise. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Then she said in verse 11, As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. In other words, Rahab had come to believe that Yahweh, Israel's God, was the only true God in the universe. Because of what he had done to the Egyptians and the Amorites on behalf of his people. And now she had become convinced that Yahweh was going to do the same to her people so that Israel could possess their land. And she perceived this terror, this dread of Israel, which had befallen her people, the inhabitants of Jericho, And she saw it as a harbinger of the destruction which God was going to bring upon them at the hands of the Israelite. She was right, of course. In fact, that dread that the city was experiencing, 
that was from the Lord. He had promised several times to send this fear upon the inhabitants of Canaan. One place is in Exodus 23, verse 27. Way back from this, he had said, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. That's what Rahab saw and now described to the spies. And then having heard of the mighty acts of Yahweh to deliver them from the Exodus and from Sihon and Og and having come to believe in Yahweh as the one true God in heaven and on earth, Rahab then sought deliverance through these two spies, the only Israelites she knew, for herself and for her family from the destruction which she knew the Lord, Yahweh, was about to bring upon her people. So we read the conclusion of her speech there in verses 12 through 13. She said, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. In other words, she had shown loving kindness to the two spies by risking her life to protect them from her own people. And now she was asking them to show loving kindness to her family by sparing her and them when Israel returned to destroy Jericho. Notice she wasn't appealing to justice. She was appealing to mercy. She says, she asked them to deal kindly with her family. She's appealing to grace when she asked these two spies for protection. So, why did Rahab, the Canaanite harlot, betray her own people and risk her life to protect two men who had come to spy out her city on behalf of an invading army bent on destroying it? Well, in short, she had been converted. She had forsaken the gods of Canaan and she had put her faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, as the one true God. And she had demonstrated her faith by forsaking her own people to ally herself with the people of Yahweh instead. And she had put her trust now in Yahweh through these spies to deliver her from judgment, all out of his loving kindness. Well, it was Rahab's dramatic conversion then that explains not only her actions, but also explains, I think, the response of the two spies to her request. In verses 14 and following, they said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. In other words, they agreed to facilitate her family's deliverance from destruction during the fall of Jericho if she continued to protect them and help them escape. But you might have asked, well, doesn't this contradict the Lord's explicit instructions to Israel? One thinks of a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 2, where it says, When the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. 
You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Yet when you read the story, it seems that the Lord didn't have a problem with the two spies sparing Rahab. Why? Probably because she had forsaken her idols and put her faith and trust in him. One commentator put it this way. Her confession of faith made all the difference. She was, in effect, no longer a Canaanite. In verses 15 through 21, Rahab continues to demonstrate her faith in the Lord and that her faith was real by not only hiding the spies on her roof, but following through and helping them escape. So, as it says in verses 15 through 16, Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. So those hunting the spies would have assumed, of course, that if they did escape the city, they would try to flee back across the Jordan. So she tells the spies, don't go that way, go the opposite way, up into the hills. Otherwise, you'll run into those pursuing you and just stay there for three days until they give up their chase and then you can return across the Jordan safely. Upon leaving, we see that the two spies charge Rahab to make sure that she brings all her family into her house and then ties a scarlet cord in her window. The purpose of this bright-colored cord, of course, would be to alert uh, the Israelites. After all, her window was on the edge of the city wall. They could see, then, her location so that they might be able to spare her when Jericho fell. But the spies warn her if she betrayed them, After they were gone, or if she failed to follow through in any of their instructions, then the agreement between them would be nullified, and Rahab and her family, at least any who weren't in her house, would perish along with everyone else in the city. And the section ends in verse 21 by really assuring us of her commitment to follow through on the terms that the spies had laid out. She said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. In verses 22 through 24, this is the end of the story, the spies follow Rahab's directions, and they successfully escape back over the Jordan to the Israelite camp. And immediately, of course, they go to Joshua, and they explain everything that's happened. And, you know, their cover was blown, so it's unlikely they got much by way of military information, right? But they had learned one thing on this spy mission that turned out to be of great help to Joshua and I think to the people of Israel. We see it there in verse 24. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Now, you might even notice by reading that that They're basically saying exactly what Rahab had told them back in verse 9. And and now they're relaying it to Joshua. You see, they were able to report to Joshua. We went into Jericho. One of the residents of the city told us 
that the Lord is going to give the city into our hands. And she told us about the dread that had fallen upon all the inhabitants of the city. You know, this reminds me of one of the signs that God gave to Gideon. It says, if you're still scared, go down and hide right outside the camp of the Midianites. So Gideon did that. And he overheard a conversation between two Midianites. And one of them said, I had this dream of, of, of stone coming through and destroying our camp. And the other says, oh yeah, that's Gideon. The Lord has given the camp into his hands. And Gideon goes back to the camp going, yep, I'm pretty sure the Lord's going to give them into our hands. Well, that's kind of like what this is. He, they'd gone into the city. One of the people in the city had told them, the Lord is going to give this city into your hands. So here was one of the purposes of God in this event was that the Lord had given us great sign to Joshua through these two spies by way of Rahab that he certainly would give the city of Jericho into their hands. And this would give Joshua even more courage to follow through on this incredibly daunting task of leading the people into the land of Canaan, this task which God had commissioned him. So that's the story. We've looked at it, this story of an unlikely convert that we have in Joshua 2. And now let's just consider what it means for us today. And I want to highlight a number of things. The meaning of Joshua 2. First, we are reminded of the truth that Yahweh is the one true God. So at the literary heart of this chapter is the lengthy speech of Rahab in verses 9 through 13. That's the beating core of this passage. And at the center of that speech is the confession she uttered at the end of verse 11. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So there, out of the mouth of a Canaanite who was also a prostitute, we hear the central truth of all of Scripture. The God revealed in the Bible, Yahweh is his name, is the one true God over all creation. There is none beside him. All true morality begins with recognizing and accepting that fact. This is why the greatest commandment in all of Scripture is this. Love the Lord, Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the first of the Ten Commandments is, I am Yahweh, the Lord, your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Believing in the Lord. As the one true God, it's the fountainhead of all righteousness and refusing to believe in him. It's the essence of evil and folly, which contaminates everything else that a person does. You cannot do anything righteous apart from a disposition of faith and trust in Yahweh as the one true God. This is what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said in Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is impossible to please him. So if you're here this morning and you think, I don't need Christianity to be a good person. You are so, so wrong. That is an error that will lead you to eternal destruction in hell. Every day that you have not believed in Yahweh, the God revealed in the Bible, 
as the one true God is a day that you have been refusing to give him the honor and thanks he is due. And that has made all of your other so-called righteous deeds like filthy rags in his sight. May the Lord open your eyes this morning and bring you to a conviction over your unbelief that you might repent and believe in him today. May you come to confess with Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, the Lord, your God. He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And brothers and sisters, we have come to believe in the Lord as the one true God. But are we living like it? You know, it's easy to be intimidated by the fact that we live in a pluralistic world, right? Where hundreds of millions of people around the globe have very sincerely held faith in other religions and other gods. And where questioning people's sincerely held religious beliefs is considered offensive. And so we can find ourselves shying away from exclusive claims about God, even though we might believe them in our heart. And we might resort to, you know, simply, let me tell you what I believe. You know, but how different are the words of Rahab? She's like a wild-eyed new convert, and she's boldly declaring of Yahweh, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Perhaps there are some of us in this room who need to be chastened by the example of this Canaanite prostitute. That's how Christians ought to talk, confidently declaring that the Lord alone is God. Why? So that all might believe in him. Second, we're reminded that God saves sinners by grace through faith apart from any merit in them. You know, we're told later on in Joshua 6.25 that Rahab and her family were saved alive from this judgment of God which fell upon her hometown of Jericho. And she went on to live in Israel, it says, until this day, the writer says. It's a striking thing to consider. The entire Exodus generation of Israelites perished in the wilderness under God's judgment outside the promised land while a Canaanite prostitute was saved from God's judgment upon Jericho and lived with God's people in the promised land. How could that be? The answer is that Rahab believed and the Exodus generation didn't. Rahab was saved by faith and the Exodus generation, by and large, perished because of their unbelief. Rahab had heard, just heard, of the mighty acts of Yahweh and had put her trust in him to save her from his judgment. And so he did. Israel had seen and experienced the mighty acts of judgment with their own eyes and yet refused to trust in him. And so they perished in the wilderness under his wrath. And this reflects a core principle of the gospel, doesn't it? The gospel announces the mighty acts of God in history to save sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who entered into the world as a man, 
to save fallen human beings from the power and penalty of their sin. He fulfilled the commands of God on their behalf as their representative in his righteous life. He then took the penalty that they deserve for their sin in their place when he died a sinner's death upon the cross. And then he secured their rescue from the grave and from hell through his own resurrection unto life. And anyone who will simply believe this good news and put their trust in him to save him out of his free favor will be saved. They don't have to be anything. They don't have to do anything to be worthy of it or to contribute to it or bring it about. It's just a gift. It's received by faith. This is what the scriptures say over and over. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And again, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And again, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Or again, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, you could be the most moral or religious person with the most noble and respectable background and end up perishing in the judgment of God for your sins if you don't believe in Jesus. But you can be the most notorious and wretched sinner with the most obscure or disreputable background and end up being saved and included among God's people if you simply believe in Jesus. Even as God told the Pharisees, do you remember? That event when he saw the remarkable faith of that Roman centurion. Matthew 8, 10 through 12, he said this. Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is one thing Rahab's unlikely conversion shows us. This is the good news for every sinner in this room who, who hasn't yet been saved. Just believe in God revealed in Scripture. Put your trust in His Son, Jesus Christ, His appointed Savior, and you will be saved from the judgment of God which is coming not just upon Jericho, but upon this world. It's also humbling to us as Christians, brothers and sisters, because it reminds us we have been saved by faith alone, apart from anything we did to deserve it. You remember how Paul told the Gentile Christians in the church of Rome who were starting to get a little uppity because they were saved and so many Jews were not. You remember what he said to them? He said, yes, they, the Jews, were broken off because of their unbelief, But you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. It's just by faith. Third, we're reminded of the astounding magnitude of God's grace toward sinners. You know, when we read the story of this unlikely convert, 
Rahab the prostitute, we're just meant to respond in amazement. We're not meant to look at Rahab's faith and show, wow, she had amazing faith. We're, we're meant to say the free favor of God toward undeserving sinners. Though Rahab believed the Lord, it's not like she deserved to be spared from God's judgment upon Jericho. She had lived most of her life as a pagan and a prostitute. She had enough guilt to perish in Jericho's destruction and then be sent to hell. But God saved her. Because he's a merciful and gracious God who doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, but loves to save them when they repent. This is his nature. You remember his revelation to Moses of himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. He said, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So Rahab's inclusion into the covenant community, and even, as I mentioned in Matthew 1.5, even into the line of the Messiah, though she was a Canaanite and a prostitute, that's a testimony to the astonishing grace of God toward undeserving sinners. And the same thing is seen in many unlikely converts whom the Lord has saved and brought into his kingdom, according to scripture. A Syrian leper named Naaman, a Moabite widow named Ruth, a woman possessed of seven demons named Mary Magdalene, a tax collector named Matthew, a Roman centurion, an Ethiopian eunuch, and on and on. While many seemingly worthy people kings and royal officials in Israel, priests and self-proclaimed prophets, Pharisees and Sadducees have all perished in their sin, excluded from the people of God in Christ, while many notorious sinners have been forgiven and welcomed in. You know, Jesus told the Pharisees in his day, didn't he? Matthew twenty-one thirty-one. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Sinner, nothing about you, nothing you have done, makes you so lowly or so undeserving that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. A broken heart, a contrite spirit, he will never deny. Simply come to God in faith like Rahab the prostitute did, trusting in him to save you from perishing in his judgment, all out of his own free favor that you don't deserve. And he'll do so. And believer, remember what grace you've received so that you might be gracious toward the sins of others, whether that's your spouse or your children or your neighbor. You know, I can't help thinking that the reason why noble Boaz was so willing to condescend to show kindness to a lowly Moabite widow named Ruth was because his own mother had been Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, saved alive from the destruction of Jericho by God's grace. See, may the grace we have received from God have the same effect upon us as well. May it make us gracious people toward our fellow sinners. 
Fourth, we're reminded of the fact that saving faith will always show itself by works. You know, it's true. Rahab was saved by God's grace when she simply believed and trusted in him. However, the true quality of her faith was demonstrated by her actions, her actions of risking her life to save these two Israelite spies. You know, this is what the apostle James reflected on about Rahab. You remember he said in James 2, 25 through 26, he says, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified, that is, in this context, shown to be righteous by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So Rahab could have confessed her faith in Yahweh to the spies, but if she hadn't taken action to help them when it was dangerous, then her faith would have been proven empty and she would have perished with her people. Her actions proved that she really did believe in Yahweh and really did trust in him to save her from his coming judgment. And this principle, by the way, is no less true today. True saving faith in Jesus Christ will show itself in the way that a person lives. If someone professes faith in Christ, but doesn't really love him in their hearts, and will not really obey him in their life, at least not when it's inconvenient, then their faith is dead. It's not saving faith. One who truly believes the gospel, that Jesus has sacrificed himself to save them, will love him and will be willing to take up their own cross and follow in his steps. Friends, if your faith has made no difference to your heart and to your life, you need to wake up and you need to take stock of your spiritual condition. It may very well be that the faith that you profess is just superficial. It's a dead faith. And if so, I would urge you to go home and close with Christ today. Confess your sin to him. Be willing to forsake it. Hold nothing back. Get rid of all your idols. Cry out to him to save you trusting in his death and resurrection alone. And then get serious about learning to follow Christ and obey his commands, beginning perhaps with baptism and joining a local church. Fifth and finally, we're reminded of the fact that God is mindful of our weakness and strengthens our faith as needed. You know, it might be said, aside from saving Rahab the prostitute, which is really the central event, of this chapter, the other main purpose that God accomplished through the events recorded here in Joshua 2 was to strengthen the faith of Joshua and in Israel. You know, that was the effect of the words of Rahab to the spies, which they then reported to Joshua in those last three verses of the chapter. So to hear from a Canaanite inside Jericho that the inhabitants of the land were melting away with fear before them, that was a great sign to Joshua and to all Israel that God was indeed going to fulfill his promises to give them the land. And this was important. It's not because God's promises needed confirming as if they were ever in doubt. Of course not. But it was important because the faith of Joshua and the faith of all Israel is just liable to grow weak and 
and falter. So God had orchestrated the events of this chapter in his mercy to give them a sign that would strengthen their resolve. Brothers and sisters, isn't it true? We too are prone to grow weak and falter in our faith. Because we're all frail, fallen sinners. You know, some days we feel strong and bold. And we say with Peter, Lord, I would never deny you. And then something happens, oftentimes fairly small, which confuses and discourages us. And we can easily find ourselves weak and wavering in our faith and trust in God. God, where are you? God, I don't know if you will help me anymore. God, I don't know if I can hang on. Now, God is a good father, and he understands this about us. You remember the psalmist says in Psalm 103, he knows our frame. He remembers we are dust. So as a father shows compassion to his children in their weakness, so the Lord shows compassion to us. He graciously strengthens our faith when we need it and when we feel ourselves wavering. And we can cry out to him. We can say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And he will hear us and he will help us out of his tender mercy. Well, in conclusion, this morning we've read this soul story, soul stirring God glorifying account of an unlikely convert in Joshua 2. Now, we have got a lot to learn from Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute's journey to faith. May God seal the lessons of this chapter upon our hearts so that we would take them to heart and be nourished and strengthened spiritually by them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and if I could have the men serving the Lord's Supper come on up, that would be great. Our God, we thank you for this wonderful chapter of Scripture. What an astounding chapter, a chapter which takes us by surprise, a chapter which testifies to those glorious truths even more magnified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have saved us by faith out of your free favor through our Lord and Savior. And even as we come now, having considered these things to the Lord's Supper, and we partake once again in this symbolic rite that you have given to us, that the Lord Jesus established for us on the night before he died, that you have given it to us to remind us of what he has done to be a time of spiritual communion together with our Lord by the Spirit. That as we partake, our own hearts would be strengthened, our faith would be encouraged and fanned into flame, and our love for Christ would be made greater. And we pray that you would do all of this through our time now of taking the Lord's Supper together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.